RUF. Um, thanks so much. I know it's a busy time of year, so thanks so much for coming out. Um, tonight we have, we're doing a relationship series called Relationships Reimagined, and tonight we're doing Sex Reimagined, uh, which ought to be sufficiently awkward for all of us. Um, if you say a prayer in your heart for me uh, right now. Uh, but to do that, uh, we're going to start doing some book blurbs. And tonight, um, if you were to read one book, because uh, you're going to have, we're, we're, I'm going to do a sermon, but this is such a big topic. If you're a book person, if you love to read, this is one of my favorite books about sex. <laughs> Sounds weird to say. It's a book called Real Sex by one of my favorite authors named Lauren Winter. And a lot of what I'm doing tonight is actually coming from this book. And so if you're a book person, Real Sex by Lauren Winter, you, can, you could scarcely do better when it comes to thinking about sex from a biblical perspective. Uh, so we're doing the whole series, uh, Relationships Reimagined, and we're, we're thinking every week, we're kind of using Beyonce songs to get us started and to get us thinking. And tonight is a little bit of a cheat because uh, it's technically not a Beyonce song, it's a Destiny's Child song, and it's, uh, and it's bootylicious because I just felt like it's pretty appropriate for a lot of different reasons. And because she says this, and you know it, and it's going to sound ridiculous when I read it, but just enjoy it. I don't think you're ready for this jelly. I don't think you're ready for this jelly. I don't think you're ready for this jelly. Because my body's too bootylicious for you, babe. That's it. That's the quote. Uh, I'm not going to even try to tie it into tonight, other than saying, are you ready for this jelly? Um, The best... Sorry, that was bad. The passage we're going to look at is in your handout. Uh, We're going back to the beginning uh, to think about a framework for how do you think about sex. Um, We live in a culture that is saturated with it. We probably had parents that maybe tried to talk to us about it. Uh, I can, I vividly, I'll never forget. I mean, I I was young when my dad, I mean, kudos for my dad for going in early because I think I was like 10 or maybe 11 tops. And he was like, Sammy, boys have this, and girls have this, and sex is when you do this. And I was like, what? Mind blown, right? I was a little too young to grasp the concept of, of sex. But I don't, know your, you know, I don't know if you had that talk with your parents. Typically, you're more like me, where you learned the most about sex from peers, from stumbling upon things on the Internet, which has not shaped your view of sex in helpful ways uh, from exploring with friends, from exploring with girlfriends, boyfriends, which, again, hasn't probably shaped you in super helpful ways. But what does the Lord, when, the, when, we, when, we, when we begin to talk about sex, what does the Lord have to say about it? And here's what I want to read from Genesis 2, 18 to 25. And I'll read, then we'll pray, then we'll get into it. But here's Genesis 2, 18 to 25. And here's uh, what the Lord says. It says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones. This is a song. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. And they shall become one flesh. And this is the verse I'm going to focus on. And the man and his wife were both naked, 
and were not ashamed. They were naked and were not ashamed. Let me pray for us, and then we'll, we'll get into it. Father, you know that uh, a lot of us could say that we have um, been naked and ashamed, um, the, the very opposite of that. Um, there, there are parts, even as we come to talk about sex, that make us uncomfortable, either because we feel like that's so remote from our experience or we feel like it's been so close and such a part of who we've been and the ways we've misused it and abused it and the ways we've been abused. And Lord, we pray that as we come to think about something that, that we so desperately need to talk about and yet are so terrified to talk about, that you would meet us with your grace. Lord, we thank you above all else that you are a God. You're the God of second chances. You're the God of deep, deep grace. Um, and Lord, you meet us right where we are, not where we should be. And Lord, I pray that, that we would know that and remember that as we think about sex uh, tonight. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So I mentioned the Lauren Winter book, and uh, you have a quote on your handout that I'm going to start with that I love because we're talking about basically what we're doing tonight. When we think about sex, we're going to kind of do three things. And this is from Real Sex. The idea of it is we're going to make a couple different points, but we're going to do lies the culture tells about sex, lies that Christians or the church tells about, tell about sex, and then the truth about sex. So lies the culture tells us about sex, lies Christians, the lies we tell when the church tells us about sex, and then lastly, the truth about sex from God's word. But here's what she says, thinking about some of these, the way that we think about sex. And she's thinking about Walker Percy, who's one of my favorite authors. And she says this, she said, Catholic novelist Walker Percy often took Latter-day Gnosticism as his theme. And he suggested that our failure to live well in our bodies, C.S. Lewis used to say, God loves bodies because he made them and he has has one himself. Jesus right now has a body as we speak. It's a glorified body, but yet still a body. Our failure to live well in our bodies manifests itself in two ways. Either, and this is the, the church problem, either we live as angels, as though we don't have bodies, and that's typically what we do as Christians with, when we talk about sex. We just don't talk about it, and we pretend like we don't have bodies. Or we live as beasts, as if bodies are all there is. And again, for the culture, the culture we live in, is what we call culture of death, a culture that, that has its roots not in Judeo-Christianity, but in, in sort of an evolutionary understanding of where we come from. At the end of the day, if we're going to logically follow that, we're beasts, right? So we're either angels or we're beasts. In either scenario, we witness the trivialization of the erotic by its demotion to yet another technique and need satisfaction of the or- and a need satisfaction of the organism. So that's how we're thinking about tonight. First, lies... That culture tells, then lies that Christians tell, then lastly, truth uh, about sex. The first, lies that culture tell about sex. And there are a couple that I want you to see. Here's the first. uh, That porn won't shape the way that we think about sex. The first lie that I think our culture tells us is that porn won't shape the way that we think about sex. Um, It's interesting to think about the difference between what you had to do to look at porn in 1993 versus what you had to do, what you have to do to look at porn in 2013. Uh, today we live in a, you know, you've, we've read books, or if you haven't read books, one of the points that every author makes is it's so much part of the danger of pornography in our society, and the reason that we, a lot of us struggle with it so much is that it's unlimited access with very, very limited risk. 1993, to, do, to, to look at anything sort of like porn-y, you either had to risk getting your car, go to a store, buy a magazine, have a human transaction... You had to go to an adult theater. You had to rent something, own, own your pay-per-view. Um, if you can remember those days, which were some of you weren't even born then. 2013, it's easy. You, you have it in the palm of your hands. No one has to know. You can erase your history. No one has to know about it. 
Here's what John Mayer said about it, about what does pornography do to the way we think about sex. And we're just kind of getting into it. So let's embrace the awkwardness of tonight because we're just going. It's going to get way more awkward than talking about porn. Here's what John Mayer said in an interview in Playboy. Um, and here's what he said about, he was talking about porn. He said this, he said, pornography, it's a new, a new synaptic pathway. You wake up in the morning, open a thumbnail page, and it leads to a Pandora's box of visuals. There have probably been days when I saw 300 naked women before I got out of bed. How could you be constantly, and this is point he makes, how can you be constantly synthesizing an orgasm based on dozens of shots? You're looking for the one photo out of 100 you swear is going to be the last. And here's what he says. How does that not affect the psychology of having a relationship with somebody? It's got to. This is the first lie that we sort of believe, that, that porn and looking at porn doesn't at all affect the way we think about sex. Now, what is sex? I'm going to argue that the Bible's definition of sex is you're making a promise with your body. You're making promises with your body. So fundamentally, we're going to say that sex, fundamentally from the beginning, if you look at Genesis 2, sex is fundamentally other-centered. We're going to talk about marriage as the proper covenant context for sex because we've said in Aria before that part of what happens when you do sex outside of marriage is you make promises with your body that, you can't, that you've not made with your life. Right? But part of what porn says, if sex is fundamentally other-centered, part of the lie that we believe, just all of us believe, and it's not just porn, it's romantic, I mean, it's, it's rom-coms, it's, it's everything that we sort of drink and see, songs that we listen to, whatever, it sort of says that sex is primarily about me. Sex is primarily about me having my needs met and, and the other person having their needs met. Sex becomes fundamentally, this is what breaks it down, it becomes fundamentally self-centered instead of other-centered. When that happens, break, breakdowns begin to happen, right? That's the lie of porn, and, and, and that's the lie of masturbation. That's why Woody Allen used to say, don't knock, don't knock masturbation at sex with someone I love. Which is funny, but awkwardly funny. But what he meant by that was, there's something profound there, is that, that part of what it does to our thinking about it is we become consumers instead of covenant keepers, when we think of, the way that we think about sex. So the first lie is that porn won't shape the way that I think about sex. Here's the second one, is that marriage is where sex goes to die. Marriage is where sex goes to die. This was fascinating as I was thinking about this. I had a friend recently ask me, he said, can you name one TV couple just in recent, in your recent history that gives us like, that makes married sex look incredible? Just one sort of TV couple that makes sex, just married sex look amazing. And I started thinking, and I can't, maybe you can think of one. I couldn't think of one. What I could think of is like, we watch, my wife and I like to watch Modern Family. And even if you think about one of my favorite episodes of all time is the episode where the kids catch the parents having sex. Oh, it is the most, whether that's ever happened to you or not, and I pray it has not happened to you. Although part of me kind of prays it has happened to you because there's something healthy about catching your parents having sex. Um, if, there's anything, if there's anything you remember from tonight, remember this. It is healthy to catch your parents having sex. But, uh, but even if you think about their relationship, uh, you know, some of the scenes I think about is where Phil, they, they do that thing where Phil pretends to be this mysterious agent and Claire pretends to be, they meet as strangers in a bar. And you get this impression they have to do something. Sex is so terrible in marriage, you've got to do something, you have to do something desperate to spice it up, right? That's kind of what we believe about it. Uh, or think about uh, one of my favorite movies in recent years is, is Bridesmaids. It's genius on all kinds of different levels. But think about the conversation between the older married woman and the young, naive girl from the office, and they're talking about sex. And it's sort of the impression that, you know, the girl is saying she's only ever had sex with her boyfriend. 
And the, old, the older woman, the older wife with teenage kids kind of says, you're wasting your life. You need to have sex with as many people as possible before you get married. Why? Because marriage is where sex goes to die. That's kind of the lie that our culture tells us. And yet, if you think about if sex is making promises with your body, saying something deep with your body, which is what it is, then how are you going to do that? Isn't, isn't, a, isn't a context in which you've made similar promises with your life the best context to do it? Because it, because it brings safety and it brings security. That's why, by the way, we're going to talk about this, but that's why when you, when you make that step in a relationship and you're not anywhere close to marriage and you're not married, it sort of changes the relationship. Because you're saying something with your body that you have not at all in any level made with your life. Um, think about it like this. Um, I love this idea of, you know, when we come to think about freedom, you know, we're sort of part of the way when we think about sex, we think, well, I should be free to do what I want. I should be free to have sex with who I want to have sex with. But I've always loved sort of the analogy, and I've used it before, of, of a fish in a fishbowl. And you sort of imagine a fish, and here's this little fish, and it's in a fishbowl, and it's swimming around. You think, this fish is so limited. So then you put the fish in like a larger tank, and you think, okay, ah, now the fish is finally more free. And yet, even in a tank, its walls around the tank is still, maybe it's got some plants and stuff, but it's still a very limited space for the fish to swim around in. So then you say, well, this fish isn't free, so you take the fish, and you put them, you know, you, you take the fish, say I was doing this, I take them from a fish bowl, I put them in a tank, I take them from a tank, and then I throw them in the ground. And I say, now the fish is really free. He can go wherever he wants. There's no limitations on him. There's, he's totally free to go and be where he wants to be, and yet, if we were to do this, if I were to, like, and some, one RUF, I would love to, like, reenact this, even though it'd be, Peto, Peto would not be proud of me. But if that were to happen, the fish would slowly gasp for air, gasp for air, and then die. Freedom is the power to do what you should. That's what freedom is. And freedom happens best when it's in the context that Beth, that best enables a fish or enable you know a fish can thrive in a fishbowl right it's not it's free in the sense of it was made to live in water in the same way the bible says sex was made to live within marriage because they're equal they're equal there's equality and promises that you're making with your life and your body so second marriage is where sex goes to die and then thirdly it's better to have never lived than to die a virgin it's sort of what we believe it's better to have never lived than to die a virgin. This is coming from, I had a, a great conversation with a friend who's my age, and, and he's a virgin. He's never had sex before. And he says when he's with his, especially his non-Christian friends, and they, and that sort of comes out, like that, okay, I'm a Christian. And the first, interestingly, the first question people ask him when he says I'm a Christian, they say, have you ever had sex before? And he says, no, I've never had sex before. And he says they look at him with equal parts like he's a, like a mythical creature from Narnia, like where do you come from? But also like pity. Like, oh, poor you. You have not lived. You have not lived carpe diem. You have not lived life to the fullest. This is why I think Barney Simpson and How I Met Your Mother are such an interesting character. Because on the one hand, especially us guys, there's a part of us that maybe can envy Barney. Barney seems to sort of be free and he takes what he wants, especially sexually. And yet there's another part of us that, that kind of pities him. Because we see through the facade of, of here's this, this incredibly you know, sexually you know, experienced person, and yet we know at the end of the day he's empty. He, he, he's missing what life is about. Um, there's a sense in which we have to say that, that if we really think that, that you haven't ever lived, that it's better to have never lived than to die a virgin, 
that we're missing a couple things. Well, the one thing we're missing is that we're thinking about sex as a need instead of as a gift. Now, it's interesting to say that because when we think about what do you need to live, we can say you, you have to, to live, you have to have food, you have to have water, but we can't put sex on the same, as, on the same level as food and water. You can live as a human being. You cannot live as a human being without food or water, but you can live as a, as a human being without sex. Another way of thinking about it is, is thinking about, would we say that Jesus lived a full life? I think most of us, if we're, if we're Christians, we sort of say Jesus, you know, when we think about when Jesus says, I came to give life and life to the fullest, sometimes we forget that Jesus never had sex. Jesus was a virgin. Jesus died a virgin. And yet we sort of, we, we look at that and our culture sort of says, well, what a waste. He never really lived. And yet we can sort of say, no, he's the author of life. He, he's, he lived life to the fullest. He came to give life to the fullest. Uh, so three sort of lies I think the culture tells. Uh, but there are also lies. The culture isn't the only place that tells lies. Um, the church also does too. We lie to each other as, as Christians as well. Uh, and there are a couple different ways I think we do this. One of the ways that we do this with one another, lies that the Christians tell, here's one of them, that sex is the unforgivable sin. Uh, sometimes we sort of live as if it's, it's, we have kind of acceptable sins for Christians and unacceptable sins for Christians. You know what I mean by that? Like if you've grown up in the church, you know what I'm talking about. So like acceptable sins for Christians Oh, you know, I've been really slack in my, in my praying and my Bible reading lately. And we're like, oh, acceptable sin. You're still a Christian. We know you. We see you. I had sex with my boyfriend last night. Probably don't know Jesus. Probably not a Christian. And I want to sort of say, you can't read the Gospels and not be struck by how much sexually broken people, far more than religious people, were drawn and loved and loved to be around Jesus. It's striking that Jesus had far more followers that were sexually broken than he did people who were religiously, who didn't struggle at all with, with sort of sexuality, but, but were religiously, you know, zealous. It's interesting, you know, one of the things that one of my old pastors used to say is, is religious people kill Jesus. Sexually broken people love Jesus. Because they knew their need for him. Religious people killed Jesus because they hated the suggestion that they needed something other than their own good works and goodness. Um, C.S. Lewis always says it best. C.S. Lewis said, the devil didn't become the devil through lust. The devil became the devil through pride. And sometimes as Christians, we're, we're very, very proud. We're too proud to admit that we're sexually broken. You know, the story that I love just out of Jesus' life is the story when he's with the woman, the Samaritan woman at the well. And it's that incredible story where, you know, he sort of says, like, listen, I know your past. You've been with six different men. You're living with a man now who's not your husband. In other words, here's this woman. She's incredibly sexually. She was what? She would be the version of campus that was, you know, the girl on campus who sort of, who's made her ways around. She slept around a lot. And yet Jesus says, the thing that she can't get over about Jesus, and she goes literally back to her town, and she says this beautiful line. She says, I'm, come meet a man who told me everything I ever did. And the implication of what she says is, come meet a man who knows all of my sexual brokenness and yet loves me and yet wants me and yet has, done, has gone to the furthest lengths to make me his own. Which is why if we get real honest as Christians, 
what we are is we're all sexually broken people. This is a definition of what it means to be a Christian. You ready? A Christian is someone who's a sexually broken person. And you've either acted out on that or you haven't. But you're still, you've got sexual messed upness in you. Sexually broken person who's being made sexually whole by Jesus. And who's learning to be sexually faithful as you follow him. And Jesus, by the way, is a safe person because even though he was sexually pure, that's one of the things the Samaritan woman can't get over is here's a man who treated her with dignity for the first time in her life. She can't get over it. And yet, here's a man who died the death that sexually unfaithful people deserve to die. That's part of what the cross was. Here's a sexually pure person, Jesus, never sinned, dying the death that you and I, sexually broken people, deserve to die for our sexual unfaithfulness. And yet, that's what a Christian is. Someone who can admit they're sexually broken and they need Jesus to make them sexually whole, and they're learning to be sexually faithful as they follow him. So first, sex is the unforgivable sin. That's not what the Bible says. Two, here's lies that Christians sell. Here's the second one. That honeymoon I love this. This is from John Acuff. That honeymoon sex is better than the second coming of Jesus. That honeymoon sex is better than anything and everything. This is sort of we do this, um, especially as you get engaged, you'll learn how weirdly Christians talk about um, honeymoon sex, as if it's going to be like mind-blowing. And the way I like to think about it is you saw the hangover, you're like, oh, that was so funny. And you go into hangover two and you're like, oh, that was the worst. Think hangover two for your honeymoon sex. It's going to be disappointing in a lot of ways, okay? It's going to be awkward, painful, Please, as you move to the step of being engaged, you have to talk to married people who have actually had sex and not take your cues from movies uh, like some of us did, not naming names, namely me. Um, (laughs) Sometimes the way, you know, sometimes the way that we as Christians talk about honeymoon sex is is just completely out of line with the reality of it. that's the bad news. But the good news is that it's not supposed to be spectacular. It's not supposed to be epic. It's not supposed to be incredible. You know, the thing that I kept thinking about as I was thinking about this is, is God loves the mundane. This isn't just about sex. This thing, you can apply this to a lot of places. God loves the normal. God loves daily bread. He loves working in the mundane, normal details of your life. And part of what I love about this when you think about sex is it's far, far, far more about the, the quantity than it is the quality. It's far, far forward. That's why Paul, when he gets, is in 1 Corinthians 7, that's what he says. He doesn't say anything. He's not concerned at all when he's talking to married people in 1 Corinthians 7. He's not at all concerned about the quality of their sex, how epic it is. He's not at all taking his cues from Cosmo and GQ, like the 11 things to amaze your lover in bed. Like that's not where Paul is. He more is saying, listen, don't neglect coming together, except for a season of prayer, but be, be regular. Um, yeah, let's just drink that image in. Um, another, way of, another way of thinking about it is, you know, thinking about, uh, can you name the last home-cooked meal you, the last home-cooked meal you ate two weeks ago, last two Wednesdays ago, what you ate for supper? And there's a sense in which, you know, when you think about the idea of, of, of remembering, and especially as you grew up, the, the meals that your mom made or the meals that your dad made, a lot of times it wasn't at all about how spectacular it was. It was far, 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 far more about how it nourished you. And sometimes you're going to be nourished in ways you don't really even remember what you, you couldn't even tell me what you ate last two Wednesdays ago. 
and yet you ate something you were nourished. That's more how the Bible thinks it talks about sex, especially within marriage. That it's something it's supposed to be something that is far, far, far more about quantity. It's far, far, far more about the awkwardness of mundane, normal coming together than it is about how epic or the 11 things you can do to impress your lover or whatever. Another thing I would say here, just as an aside, is I had a friend when we were in seminary that said to my wife and I that Satan does everything he can to get you into bed before you're married. And he does everything he can to keep you out of bed once you're married. I would love for you to tuck that away because that is so true. Satan does everything he can to get you in bed before you're married. He does everything he can, he can to keep you out of bed once you're married. And you, you can attest to sort of some of this, um, especially when you think about your parents and their, their relationship. So third, though, here's the third thing, the lie that Christians often tell about sex, and it's this. It's that God and sex don't mix. God and sex, are we keep them separate. We, we begin to get uncomfortable when we, when we begin to bring those two together. Here's what John Acuff said. He's got this article called Four, uh, Four Ways Christians Damage Sex. And he says this. I think it's a great point. He says, I've long said that popular culture often acts as if God might have invented humanity and thus sex, but he was completely caught off guard that sex was an enjoyable activity. He was convinced it was a very clinical activity designed for baby making. But when Prince showed up and told us all, told us all that what sex was, that sex was, in fact, awesome, Upon hearing this, God was so shocked. He was as shocked as I was the first time I used the Shazam app on my iPhone to tell me the name of a song I was listening to simply by holding my phone near the speaker, which is an amazing experience that we take for granted. That's what we've been told, that God and sex don't go together. And if you say something enough times, people start to believe it's true. Even pastors, kids like Katy Perry, will reinforce the barrier between God and sex. You can't have both in the same bottle. They're oil and water, cats and dogs, Spencer and Heidi. They just don't go together. This is so true. And yet, this is our passage. This is the thing. This is like the one point I want you to get from Genesis 2. The one, one, one point. Basic point. When it says that Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed, God was there. God wasn't like, oh, can't, oh, what are you doing? Gross. Like, that was not what he was doing. Then, in fact, the Bible says you can't even talk about sex without talking about God, and vice versa. You can't even begin to talk about God without talking about sex. They're, intricate, they're intricately woven together because it's part of the fabric of creation. This leads me to our last sort of point that I want to make, the truth about sex. And when you think about the truth about sex, this is the first thing I want you to see. Is that, and please, if you've grown up in the church, because here's the thing that Acuff goes on to say that's so true. He says, when you, if all you ever have heard about sex, listen to me, this is, especially girls, this is so true for you. If you've grown up your whole life in the church and all you ever heard about sex is bad, 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 don't you dare do it. Don't you come on pregnant. Don't you dare. You, I will kill you. Like some of your moms have been like, I will, you get pregnant at USC, I will kill you. I will disown you. Bad. And then you get married and you're like, sex is incredible. That's not what you think. You think bad. You think sex. Your association with sex is how bad it is. And you've never been told anything about the beauty of it. You've never been told anything about the glory of it. How incredible it is. How Mary, He has this great thing where he says you know, that, that married sex should be like neon lights within marriage. That it should be like incredible. That you're sort of you know, Song of Solomon kind of stuff. Which is why Song of Solomon, like we need to preach and read that as Christians. Because it's in the Bible. And it's how God feels about sex in marriage. Incredible. 
But it was God's idea. That's the point. This is the truth about sex. It was God's idea. He doesn't simply talk. This is where Augustine got it wrong. I love Augustine. He way overcorrected. If you know his story at all, he was the guy that did it all crazy before he knew Jesus. When he got to know Jesus, he was so sort of ashamed of sexuality that he sort of says sex in general is bad except for babies. And I would say no. The, the design of sex is not just for procreation. The design of sex in Genesis 2 is also for companionship. The design of sex from God's perspective is also for pleasure. Do you think, is your view of God a God that loves pleasure? That gave gifts to be enjoyed, sex being one of them? And that's why G.K. Chesterton used to say, you can't talk about God without talking about sex. He used to say that every knock on the, on the door of a brothel is really a knock at the heart of God. That there's something so woven into who God is that, that sex was not simply his idea, but it's wrapped up into the way that we see ourselves. It's wrapped up into what it means to be made in his image. At first, it was God's idea. The second thing, though, is it's not a good idea outside of marriage. This is the truth. Why, though? Why? We sort of, we, we know that we've heard that our whole lives, but why? And this is my thing that I want you to see. I want you to shift from thinking, this is reimagining sex. I want you to shift from thinking about sex as a consumer transaction for your pleasure. I want you to move from thinking about sex as something that's primarily about you. And think about what God says about sex, which is primarily about the other. It's primarily, it's not a consumer transaction. It's a covenant. The Bible would say a covenant renewal ceremony. What does that, what does that mean? Covenant renewal ceremony is simply you're reenacting, you're rehearsing promises that you made. And the beauty of it within marriage is you're, you're rehearsing literal promises that you've said, vows that you've taken to one another. And you, when, I've said, when I said to my wife, for better or for worse... I am with you. I will never leave you or forsake you. Rich or poor, I am here. I am making a promise with my life. Till death do us part. That's how much I love you. It's only then that you can begin to to even touch making that same promise and saying that same promise and rehearsing that promise with your body. I I love my favorite baseball movie of all time is Bull Durham. It's an old school movie. Kevin Costner, Tim Robbins. And uh, it's sort of about their life in the minor leagues. But there's this great scene where uh, Susan Sarandon's in it, and she's got this friend who's sort of the girl that is, as she's making, as these players are, live and, and are playing in the minor leagues, she's the girl that kind of sleeps with all the different players. Finally, she meets this player, and he asks her to marry her. And there's this great scene in the movie where she's with Susan Sarandon, and it's, it's the day before her wedding, and she says, can I wear, she asks Susan Sarandon, she's crying, and she says, you know, I've slept with all these people, can I wear white? And she's crying and she's thinking, can I wear a white dress? Knowing what I've done, can I wear a white dress on my wedding day? And the beautiful thing that I love is that so, a lot of you are here and, and you, you have a story. You, you haven't been faithful. But you, you've done things that, to say them out loud, make you blush. You've done things that you would hate if your parents knew. You've, you've done things, you've done things that you're ashamed of. And, and when we say naked and unashamed, you think, "No, Sammy, that's not me. I've been naked and ashamed." And I want you to know that if you're in Jesus, absolutely, you already wear white. That in Jesus. I love the way that Paul says it in Corinthians when he lists that passage of all the different ways that we're sexually unfaithful. All the different ways lust takes over our lives. And then he says, such were, such were some of you, but you've been washed 
and you've been cleansed. And now you belong to Jesus and you're absolutely radiantly white in him. And that's how, that's how you see yourself. That's your identity. That's your new God-given identity that Jesus bought for you, that Jesus makes real for you. And then the third thing, that the truth about marriage, is it's a, it's a good idea, and this is the huge point I want you to take away, is it's a good idea to talk about it more. It's a, it's a really good idea to talk about it more. You know, it's interesting, studies will say the leading cause of divorce is, are two things, uh, sex and money. It's so fascinating to me that those are the two things that we as Americans are the most private about. We're like, do not ask me about my sex life and do not ask me about what I do with my money. Like, those are off limits. And yet, those are the two places that we, we need to talk about the most. The things that we need to talk about the most, we're willing to talk about the least. And part of what I'm trying to long for you to say is begin to talk about, begin to talk about your sexual mistakes. Begin to talk about your past. Begin to talk about your sexual struggles with one another. Begin to find safe people. Safe people are people that get the gospel, that get their need for forgiveness, and are not going to sit in a posture of judgment over you. Because they understand their need for Jesus. Whether they've sexually done what you've done or not, they understand grace. And you've got to find those people and begin to talk to them about where you are and begin to talk even to Jesus himself about where you are. Be willing to risk the embarrassment of talking about it. Because if you don't begin to talk about it, it will eat you alive. I'll close with this. I love this story out of the life of Tony Campolo. He's a, a speaker, a pastor, in a, and he, he has this great story where he went in this conference to speak in Honolulu. And as he was at the conference, he was off in his time. It was 3 o'clock uh, in Honolulu, but it really felt like 9 o'clock to him in the morning. So he was hungry and he wanted breakfast. So he, found it, he went to this kind of Waffle House breakfast kind of diner place in Honolulu. And as he's eating his donuts, which sounds amazing in and of itself... Uh, about eight or nine prostitutes walk into the diner. And as he's eating, his, he's eating his donut at the counter, and he's listening to these prostitutes, and two of them begin talking, and, and one of them says, hey, tomorrow's my birthday. And the other one says, well, you know, I don't, why do I care? And, uh, and the one says, well, I know you don't care, whatever, but she was like, you know, I'm not expecting anything from you. She's like, I've never actually had a birthday party before. And then they kind of go and talking, then they leave. And Tony Campolo is still at the... Tony's still at the bar, and he, he asks the guy behind the counter, he says, his name is Henry, he says, what was, uh, he's like, do these prostitutes come in every night? And, and, and Henry says, yeah, they're in here every night. He says, what was the name that was, what was the name of the one that was talking about her birthday? And he says, well, her name is Agnes. And Tony thinks, he's like, what if you and I threw Agnes a birthday party tomorrow? Like, what if we got a cake and, and, and threw this party, they're going to be in here, it'll be a surprise party. Because, you know, I heard her say she's never had a birthday before. She's never had a birthday cake, never had a birthday party before. And Henry thinks this is a fantastic idea. So Henry and Henry's wife, who's there, and, and Tony begin planning this party. I'm just going to read what happens next. So half past two the next morning, Campolo had brought decorations, and Harry had baked a cake. Word had gotten out, and it seemed as if every prostitute in Honolulu was in the cafe, plus Campolo, who's a preacher. When Agnes entered with her friends, she was flabbergasted. Her mouth fell open and her knees wobbled as she sat on a stool. Everyone sang happy birthday. Blow out the candles, people shouted. But in the end, Harry had to do it for her. Then he handed her a knife. Cut the cake, Agnes, so we can all have some. She looked at the cake and then she slowly said, Is it all right? Would you mind if I wait a little longer? If we didn't eat it straight away? And sure, it's okay, said Harry. Take it home if you want. Can I? She said. Can I take it home now? I'll be back in a few minutes. And with that, she left, carrying her precious cake out the cafe. And here's what, it's, here's what he said. So There's a stunned silence. So Tony said, what do you say we pray? 
And they did. And Tony led a group of prostitutes in prayer at 3.30 in the morning. When they were done, Harry, the guy behind the counter, said, Hey, you, you never told me you were some kind of preacher. What kind of church do you belong to? And Campolo answered, and I love this answer. He said, I belong to a church that throws birthday parties for prostitutes at 3.30 in the morning. And Harry waited for a moment, and then he kind of sneered. And he said, no, you don't. There's no church like that. If there was, I'd join it. I'd join a church like that. And then t- Tony's writing about it, and he says this. He says, wouldn't we all? Wouldn't we all love to join a church that throws birthday parties for prostitutes at 3.30 in the morning? But anybody who reads the New Testament will discover a Jesus who loved to party with prostitutes and with all kinds of left out people. The tax collectors and sinners loved him because he partied with them. The lepers of society found in him someone who would eat and drink with them. And while the solemnly pious people could not relate to what he was about, those lonely people who usually didn't get invited to parties took to him with excitement. Let's pray. Jesus, uh, you alone know where we are, and you alone know exactly what we need. And Lord, um, we confess that we have been people that have not been sexually faithful, uh, that we have all kinds of struggles, we've done all kinds of things that we're not proud of. And yet, Lord, we pray that you would um, give us the grace to bring those things to you, to know that that's why you came for us. You didn't come for people that have it together. You came for people who are broken. You came for people who are messy. And those are the very people that you love. You love me, a broken and sexually messed up person. And you love my friends who are also broken and sexually messed up people. And we thank you for this. And we pray these things, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen.